the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, rice blast, the most devastating rice disease in the world, has been detected in rice crops near Lismore. We'll find out what that means. And also we look at the uh, issue of renewable energy in the Hunter Valley. It seems as though there's uh, talk that uh, it could be very significant. In fact, it could be a powerhouse for uh, energy in the Pacific region because the Hunter Valley is well placed. This region is actually a very special place in terms of establishing an offshore wind industry. There aren't many places around, even around the world, and it's probably unique in Australia, is that it has all the ingredients to help establish an offshore wind industry. You might have some thoughts about Rice Blast, uh, the uh, renewable industry, uh, also supermarkets under the scrutiny again. Uh, so we got lots of texts about that yesterday. You can send me a text, 0467 922 That's the number to text me here at the Country Hour. But first up, Rice Blast, the most devastating rice disease in the world. It's been detected in rice crops near Lismore in northern New South Wales, uh, and that happened on the 10th of February this year. It turns out rice growers in the northern rivers were not told about the disease being detected in the region some 10 years earlier. Now, Greens MP and rice grower Sue Higginson questioned the minister about this latest outbreak and the previous detection a decade ago in New South Wales Parliament estimates yesterday. Currently, and I'm going to disclose I have an interest, and my interest is I am a dryland rice grower. (laughs) However, I am one of the dryland rice growers in the Northern Rivers who is not currently affected by blast. Minister, are you aware that there is a blast outbreak in the Northern Rivers? Uh, Yes, I am. And that it's affecting the rice industry in the Northern Rivers? Yes, I am. Um, Are you aware that DPI, or, or one of the government agencies, was aware that blast was present in the Northern Rivers some a decade ago and that perhaps that information was never disclosed to any rice growers in the Northern Rivers at the start-up of that sector development? Uh, look, I, I don't know what was uh, information was available or not 10 years ago. Obviously, I wasn't the <coughs> minister um, at that time. Uh, if there is uh, an allegation that you're putting, I'm happy to uh, check the details, uh, ask the department. Of course, you have the department here who may be able to answer. Um, I'm not. I, I take the question seriously. I'm not aware of, of information from 10 years ago. Do you but think I it's a very serious issue? Well, I'm happy to check if, the, if that's... Oh, of if, course, of course. If there, was, if there was known to be blast on grasses in the Riverina, do you think that the rice industry would have been informed very early? I mean, I expect, uh, as per my previous answer, that information is provided and people uh, follow the rules is, I guess, the best way to engage on it. I don't know what information was previously known or not known. Minister, but you've you... raised the question with me, so I will. Will um, you have be? A look at are that. you willing to meet with the Northern Rivers rice growers and the industry there and 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 go and hear about the serious struggles and suffering and loss that they're experiencing right now? I'm happy to meet with uh, rice growers from across the north of New South Wales, just as I'm happy to meet with everybody um, who needs to engage with me. So happy to do that. Now, this uh, move represents a southern expansion of the geographic range of rice blast in Australia. The affected premises are uh, taking measures to limit the risk. DPI are going to work with the industry in the northern rivers to manage biosecurity and also conduct surveillance and awareness. But uh, Sue Higginson says that uh, this outbreak is quite disturbing. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's been very, very distressing. I mean, the Northern Rivers rice industry, the dry land rice industry, was set up because it was understood that it was an area free of blast and that blast wasn't native to that area. So, and for many years now, rice has been growing there and no blast. Um, and unfortunately, it does now seem that there is an outbreak on some rice crops in the Northern Rivers on that Richmond floodplain area. Um, and we're now seeing that blast. We suspect, we suspect that the flood has contributed to this outbreak, um, but we need to get to the bottom of it. So you don't know whether it's come down from Queensland somehow or, or been introduced by a truck or something? No, no, look, we strongly... So what we now understand and only recently has been revealed is that the DPI in New South Wales was aware that there was blast in the Northern Rivers region, that it had been carried on ryegrass and had been found in the Northern Rivers over a decade ago. We're trying to get to the bottom of that now. And no one was told, I understand. Nobody was told. Um, you know, it, it, it's looking like a significant failure here on part of our Department of Primary Industries um, because it was so clear that Northern Rivers rice growers were forming a collective, were, it was an emerging industry, big investment in the area with a new grain facility um, and no, no explanation or the passing of knowledge that blast was um, in the area from many, many years ago. We need to get to the bottom of how that failure has come about. Do you think that then there wasn't really enough protection of the industry by the department or uh, or others in the rice industry? Oh, look, I think it's very fair to say that the Northern Rivers rice industry hasn't been supported. In fact, I would go as far as saying it's been discriminated against. We know it has in terms of monopoly of the Riverina area, including through the single desk licensing system for exports, which impacts the domestic market. Absolutely, the Northern Rivers rice industry has not had the support and it has um, experienced discrimination and prejudice through the, um, the state system. Are you confident you can get on top of this and, and that, uh, you know, some of the varieties you've got are resistant so it won't be spreading? Yeah, absolutely. Look, some of us are incredibly fortunate. We are growing varieties and we are that aren't um, impacted and we're currently not impacted and it doesn't look like we will be impacted. So those varieties, such as the Japanese Tachimanori, we know that that is not being impacted. What we need right now, we know we can get through this, but what we need desperately and immediately is we need more investment in our genetic uh, research that we're undertaking. Uh, another area where we've actually been discriminated against and we haven't had that research and development investment. Um, we need assistance on that front. But also what we really need right now is these growers who literally were already broken back from the flood, need some assistance and need the DPI and need the Minister for Agriculture to pay attention and support these incredible farmers through the next few months. And I gather the Minister says she's looking into it, but you haven't had more than that. That's exactly right. I understand there is now 
um, tomorrow there will be a meeting of DPI rice growers in the uh, Lismore area um, happening tomorrow. But the minister um, did commit yesterday that she would come, she would sit down, she would meet, and she would help us get through this. Now, I know that some Sunrise, for their processing and, uh, you know, for products here in Australia that they, uh, that they produce in Australia, they do import rice. Is there any suggestion that maybe they've imported rice blast? Uh, look, it, this is exactly the sort of thing we need to look at. We need to really... Because they do import rice for a product. We don't use all Australian rice in the products they use. Yes, yes, that's my understanding too. I mean, where we are in the north, uh, you know, we're a very different industry. We're very localised. Uh, but absolutely, and we source our seed. Uh, so, yeah, we need to understand. There, there needs to be more transparency, accountability and support for this incredibly important industry. And we know the Northern Rivers rice industry is dry land. We're literally an emerging industry to show that we can grow this product in terms of food security without that heavy, heavy reliance on irrigation. So this is a very important investment for food security for New South Wales. And it's not just a, a niche market that's uh, trying to get a sort of high value for a exotic rice varieties. Um, no, look, this is an industry literally just trying to get up and produce a high quality, good quality, sustainably grown product um, that doesn't require the same environmental inputs such as irrigation water um, than rice grown in the Riverina. Now, you haven't just been talking to the politicians. You've been talking to the DPI and trying to get to the bottom of this and ask some pointed questions as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yesterday, I was able to ask the departmental representatives if they could please provide to the committee all information um, that they may have and an explanation on what is in DPI's historic records of any blast in the Northern Rivers. What knowledge did we hold, uh, do we have, um, where is it, what do we know about it, when was it? Uh, we really need this kind of disclosure. And, you know, blast in Australia and when it came in and what happened 10 years ago and why it was kept secret. Yeah, I mean, this is this is precisely it. Is it, you know, is it literally just an error? Is it a chain of custody, the knowledge? Do we not take this very serious issue as serious as we should have? Who was involved um, in the decision-making? Exactly. These are the things we need to know. And we need to know in good faith so we can get to the bottom of it and so that we don't keep making these mistakes. I mean, we are taking a biosecurity, serious, risk-based approach. But of course, we need to look back to understand, to learn from what we've done wrong in the past um, and why we keep making these mistakes. Because we've got fire ant, we've got uh, varroa mite, we're worried about foot and mouth disease. I mean, so we don't need you know, any of these biosecurity mistakes? Absolutely. I mean, we are talking about one of the most important issues of the state, and that is food security. So we've got to, we've got to have all hands on deck when it comes to this issue. Sue Higginson, Greens MP and also rice grower as well. Now, General Manager of the North Coast-based Natural Rice Company, Steve Rogers, was asked by Miranda Saunders about the scale of the disease in the Northern Rivers rice crop. Yeah, so rice blast is a fungal um, pathogen uh, that can be detrimental to certain rice varieties, um, especially varieties that are typically uh, being bred or grown in um, temperate or arid areas like um, Riverina or California, etc. 
yeah, so we were under the impression, you know, that we were pretty well blast-free in this area. Um, so we did introduce a few japonicas into our mix. And, um, yeah, as it turns out this year, we're, blast has finally found its way into the rice on the north coast. How do you, th- um, how do you think blast came to be here on the north coast? Well, it turns out that uh, historically blast has been blast pathogen has been detected in grasses historically, and it hadn't found its way into the rice yet because we were growing um, tolerant varieties. But everything just seems to um, happen after the flood in those low lying areas post flood. Last year was the first crop after the flood. Did it look like blast was here then? Well, there was a couple of suspected areas. Um, it didn't look like blast, and we got it tested and um, through the DPI, and it didn't come back as blast. And uh, we were dry period, so we just put it down to a bit of uh, you know a dry February March we had last year. It wasn't enough to raise too many alarm bells last year. It was just a sort of okay post flood, you know. The, the soil's a bit probably stale, and you know dry periods. But then this year where we have had uh, ideal blast growing conditions where it's 25 to 28, uh, 30 degrees, humid, wet canopy all the time. This year we could go I'd walk into a crop and go, wow, that's, that's actually rice blast. We have rice blast. Looking at this year, you walked into a paddock and you, and you said that looks like rice blast. How far has it spread? It's in our Sherpa variety, so it's not... It's not widespread, but well, it's widespread in the Sherpa. All the other varieties aren't, aren't too bad. I've had the experience from rice blast in North Queensland, so all of North Australia is, um, you know, plenty of blast pathogens up in that area. So once, so the DPI has tested it and has confirmed, how many paddocks have rice blast in it? Twelve paddocks spread over from um, South Gundarimba, down into the uh, Woodburn, and then there is a slightly affected one um, up at um, Lennox Head. So what happens to those paddocks of, of Sherpa rice now? We're not in an eradication as such because it turns out it was already native, it was already here, so um, it's not going to be uh, possible to eradicate. So we've just got to manage now. So we're trying to contain. So we will destroy those, those Sherpa um, paddocks that have been infected. They will be destroyed. They'll go into a biosecurity. Um, it's not a, you know, it's not a full biosecurity, but it is, um, you know, keeping all contractors' vehicle movements, getting rid of that material. So burn that, burn all that material, and um, and cultivate get, get the remaining material underground to decompose. And uh, yeah, rice won't be grown in or around those paddocks for a couple of years. What sort of percentage of of this region's crop are we talking about that's going to have to be destroyed and those paddocks uh, be unusable for a couple of years? So we're, we're well down on hectares anyway. So, But I'll say we're probably about at this stage 30% of our crop. But yeah, it's only about 100, 170 hectares.
um, that will be destroyed. Now, you've mentioned that, uh, that, that the pathogens are native to this area but haven't been seen in, in rice crops and, until this year. Now, uh, Greens MP Sue Higginson um, grilled the uh, Agricultural Minister Tara Moriarty yesterday uh, saying that the DPI knew about this 10 years ago and didn't inform rice growers. What do you take of that situation? Look, I, I haven't seen uh, the historical, like where they were located and when. Um, I think it was just a bit of an oversight. Really, it wasn't a threat to any uh, species in the area. It does, you know, ryegrass is a host as well, but of, of, of blast, um, but it hasn't been, you know, affecting anything like that. So, yeah, a bit disappointing, you know, that it, but... Like I said, we were growing varieties that were tolerant, so nothing ever really, ever really um, highlighted as a risk. We always had, you know, our, our biosecurity uh, plans with the growers, etc. If they were, you know, worried about, if, um, you know, bringing machinery from North Queensland and things like that, but they were always aware, you know, of the risk of bringing blast into the area. But yeah, slightly disappointing that you know, uh, not yeah, not knowing that that was blast until. Um, the problem here. Now, Chris Anderson is a manager of plant biosecurity prevention and preparedness at uh, DPI. He says the disease has most likely been spread by monsoon or weather systems, and the DPI is very keen to see that rice blast doesn't spread to the Riverina. What we're seeing is the outbreak, uh, particularly in one variety of rice that's been grown uh, in the Northern Rivers District, um, and, and that variety seems to be the most heavily impacted. There's about 10 out of 12 paddocks of that variety um, that have been really seriously impacted. Um, so it is a major issue uh, for those growers. The, there are two other varieties that are growing in that area at the moment, um, and both of those are either showing no signs of damage at all or less damage than the um, impacted Sherpa crops. Is it likely you'll be able to get on top of this and uh, eradicate it, get rid of it completely from that area? Well, what people um, need to remember about this is that rice blast is established in Australia already, so it occurs in all of the northern states. Um, so is, we won't eradicate it? No, it's, a, it's present in Australia. So, so it first started to grow rice in the north of Australia. Um, and initially, uh, they didn't have any serious issues, but what seems to have occurred was the introduction of rice blast from Southeast Asia, and, and the most likely way that it arrived there was on monsoonal weather systems um, that blew the spores into the north of Australia. It's also possible that it was already present because we have native rice varieties in Australia, um, and they do get infected with rice blast, which is the same pathogen. What we've probably seen here um, with the event of some of those, uh, there was a cyclone in January, um, that brought weather down from the north and in areas where there is naturally occurring rice blast. And we expect probably that the spores have come in through that weather system, have been dumped in this area. Um, but it's also quite possible um, that it was ticking over on weed species in this area for quite some time and may have just jumped across because of the very humid conditions that we've had this year. Going back about 10 years, um, some of those growing guides mentioned the fact that it's been detected previously. So, uh, it seems that this year 
was particularly conducive and unfortunately with that particular variety it just didn't really have the resistance whereas the other varieties seemed to be much more resistant. So is there any chance that uh, some of these growers that have it and it's devastated their crops they may be eligible for some compensation? Uh, that's not an area that I deal with, sorry, so I couldn't answer that. What about the, so it, it sounds as though growing resistant varieties seems to be the way to keep it at bay. Yeah, so um, the, the rice the rice growing guides uh, for North Queensland would be of particular interest to um, growers in northern New South Wales uh, because they incorporate things like growing resistant varieties uh, and doing regular checks for the early signs of blast in a crop because it can be controlled. Um, but the key thing is you need to monitor the crop and you need to treat the crop. And are we worried about it getting in the Riverina? Certainly that's always been a concern for us uh, and that's why we maintain the rice biosecurity zone in the south of the state. Um, so the, the pathways for rice blast are regulated. Uh, for example, unmilled rice cannot be moved into that part of the state because of the risk that is posed by anything that comes out of the north. But we do need to remember that rice blast can be spread by wind and weather systems and so it's always uh, important that growers no matter where they are in the country are monitoring potentially for signs of rice blast. Chris Anderson is the manager of plant biosecurity prevention and preparedness at the Department of Primary Industries. You're listening to the Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. Qantas profits slide. The airline posts a 13% fall as it releases its half-year results. A crisis meeting for wine growers in South Australia as wholesale prices decline and input costs increase. And freedom of the press or theft. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange battling extradition to the United States on espionage charges. Those stories and much more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. And on the country hour, we're getting a few texts about the rice blast issue. Someone's saying, hmm, it seems we've been telling DPI and LLS for well over a decade now that they need to rethink their model of uh, just compliance and get back to extension. Uh, this person's saying they seem to have lost touch. It's coming up to 27 minutes past 12 here on The Country Hour. Now, the fallout from the Four Corners report on ABC TV this week is continuing. You might have some views on that. You can t send us a text, 0467 A distillery in northern New South Wales is voicing their upset about the labelling of alcohol. The TV report took a look at the growing dominance of the major retailers and one of the areas where the duopoly is gaining market power being private label alcohol. This practice includes spirits like gin and branding it similar to a boutique label. Steve Dobson owns and operates Dobson's Distillery at Kentucky and he told Lara Webster there needs to be more truth in labelling. Look, it really is a case of um, I'm sort of disgusted because... They say that they advocate for Australian producers, but the reality is they're only taking the most profitable parts of the market and they pull out the moment it isn't super profitable. You know, the producers, uh, the small producers are in for the long run. Um, I've seen this before with seltzers, with wine and with spirits. And to be honest, I think it's a very deceptive way of selling it because they sell it as though it's made by a craft producer um, for instance, their spirits are marketed as though they're made in Tasmania and the Pure Origin uh, brand looks like a, a, a craft brand, but the reality is it's made in a factory. And 
it's not of the quality that they um, are pretending to be. How much, though, does this impact you and your own business there in Kentucky? You own and operate your own distillery there. Does this have an impact on you and your business? Absolutely and enormously, as it does every other producer. There is, we work in the world of supply and demand. There is only so much demand. If they undercut the, the craft producers, the artisan producers, and sell their product like it is artisan or craft, and in doing so undercut the producers, um, they're taking some of that demand away. But if the gin is produced in Australia, doesn't it still have a place in the market? You've got to remember only 5% or less of distillers in Australia are actually distillers of gin. Uh, We are one. Um, Most of the uh, gin manufacturers don't even make their own spirit. And when you consider that gin is just flavoured vodka, um, that means probably less than 1% of what's in that gin is actually the part that we call gin. Uh, I think it is quite deceptive. I think it's 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 uh, damaging to the quality aspects of the market too because they're selling lower-grade alcohol masked by juniper. So how then would you like to see this addressed by the inquiry uh, going forward? Well, I'd, I'd like to see either some sort of uh, truth in labelling or some sort of government intervention to see that people can't position themselves as craft and artisan producers when, in fact, they are just manufacturers for profit. I'm watching many of uh, the producers who I really admire struggling at the moment, and they're not just struggling because of the uh, cost of living uh, things, which is exacerbated by Woolies and Coles gouging, price gouging, but they're suffering because of these brands coming on the market and taking away the demand that would normally be directed towards them. Steve Dobson, who owns and operates Dobson's Distillery at Kentucky, and uh, he was talking about the supermarket power there and a rebranding, which they're not happy about, and he was uh, talking there to Lara Webster. It's coming up to 29 minutes to one. Shortly we'll have some weather details, some weather on the way tomorrow, some thunderstorms and possibly some heavy rain in places. We'll hear more about that. But before we do anything else, we'll get some news headlines from Adam Storey. Good afternoon. Afternoon. Uh, More on that... uh triple homicide uh, in Sydney this week with the uh, man of accused of it uh, having face court after being charged. Quang Kyung is uh, the name of the man and he was charged last night. Uh, he's still receiving uh, treatment at Westmead Hospital. He didn't appear in court this morning. Uh, they've laid about uh, 17 charges in relation to this and the matter goes back to court in April. Uh, the Fair Work Commission has started hearing submissions on uh, whether employees should be able to work from home. That's one of the great debates the nation <laughs> is currently having. Uh, oh. Yeah, very mixed views on that. Um, so there are unions and businesses are both uh, putting in their submissions. The Prime Minister says it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. Not all companies can do it. Um, but he says there uh, should be flexibility. Uh, the Auditor-General has found that uh, hundreds of people that are on the wait list for temporary housing in the Northern Rivers following the floods up there uh, still haven't been uh, haven't been asked if they still actually need it. Uh, there's been uh, no review by the uh, Reconstruction Authority of the uh, 724 people on the list, but say so they intend to do so. Mm. Yeah, now that the Auditor-General has found <laughs> How that. How long has it been now? 
Uh, what was couple it? Of hit, couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Julian Assange, uh, his hearing's wrapped up uh, to prevent his extradition to the United States. So he's now awaiting the judge's decision on that. Uh, his lawyer, Greg Barnes, says uh, his final uh, appeal avenue may be uh, the European Court. Uh, which could prevent him from um, going to the US if this judge. Well, that was an interesting point was made that Chelsea Manning, who actually mm. gave him the information, has was pardoned. Pardoned, yes, I think it was one of by Barack the president Obama's, Obama. Um, yeah, final pardons so, before he left. Yeah. yeah, poor old Julian's still in jail. Yeah, it's just the messenger. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yes. And look out, Las Vegas, there's four rugby league teams heading there. <laughs> look there out. In, they'll be there in about the next 24 hours. The, the, and a few uh, yeah. tabloid photographers. No oh, out out, well. I'd imagine. <laughs> Apparently they're being kept away from the centre of Vegas. Right. And on the outskirts, which Probably thinking about idea. it could be even worse. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we're anyway, so cynical, we'll aren't we? We're so but cynical. Anyway, the yeah. league, that kicks off on uh, Sunday week. They are, uh, uh, of yeah. course, impressive sports people. Yeah. So, yeah, that's and, of course, quite... Vegas has just gone crazy for it. The mm. Americans love their league. <laughs> really? <laughs> Joke, Joyce. <laughs> well, mind you, it's more exciting than uh, uh, the most... uh, 18 minutes of uh, NFL you get over for Exactly. Yeah. Well, although that was actually a pretty good game, you know. Considering, oh, yeah. yeah, but most of the time it's yeah. boring as all get out. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> all right. Okay, thanks for that. Adam's story there with the news headlines. He'll be back at uh, one o'clock. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details. You unpark at the bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So, um, uh, fairly benign conditions, cloudy conditions in many parts today, but uh, the real action starts tomorrow. That's right, yes. Well, we nevertheless still expect some isolated showers or thunderstorms in the northeast, but generally dry in other parts today. Uh, but uh, with the increasing temperatures today, especially about the south, uh, southern and the western part, with the uh, maximum temperatures to expected to reach about low 40s across the southern inland, we may see some high fire ranges developing in the southwest uh, ahead of a, a mild southerly changes that will be entering the far southwest uh, later this evening or tonight. Then uh, th- uh, this change will move, uh, continue moving across the south and west as a cold front and its associated trough moves across the state. Uh, much of the state, and uh, this is dynamic system combined with the moisture may potentially bring a big thunderstorm stay across the east. So damaging winds uh, and localized heavy falls leading to flash flooding and, and the large hailstones all possible across the east, including both capitals, Sydney and uh, Canberra. And especially about Sydney and Illawarra and Blue Mountains, we may see uh, potentially see high-end thunderstorms that may uh, po- possibly bring some giant hails and locally destructive winds uh, for tomorrow uh, ahead of the southerly changes that is expected to move across Sydney late in the evening. So watch this space and keep yourself up to date with the, the warnings um, uh, for storm warnings tomorrow if you, are, if you live in the eastern half of the state. And then... 
as the trough and uh, front end, the trough continues to move northward, uh, the main storm areas will be uh, shifting to the northeast quarter of the state by Saturday. But other parts of the state will see uh, cooler and milder conditions in the wake of these changes. And so with that, the temperatures uh, in the north will be dropping from about uh, high 30s to low 40s in the north to uh, g- generally about um, say low to uh, low to mid twenties across the east, while in the west, you know, we may see the temperatures recouping again to low thirties, uh, maybe during the weekend. But on the other hand, in the wake of these changes, we will see big temperature relief across the east, and also uh, these tem- uh, these changes will bring significant air mass changes. That means perhaps Friday and possibly Saturday could be the end of the wet spells and this stormy weather we, that we have seen uh, for a while. And with these drier changes, we are not expecting um, much weather. So dry, uh, generally dry and benign weather conditions expected after this. Okay, so that storm that comes through sounds like it could hit quite a, a large area of the eastern portion of the state. So, uh, you know, there could be some areas, uh, you know, some uh, um, apple growers, uh, you know, with various uh, horticultural Areas could be hit by uh, uh, giant hail and things like that, so it could cause quite a bit of damage. Yeah, that that that's right. Uh, so with these uh, storm conditions, well, there may be some uh, risk of localized heavy falls, maybe 10 to 30 millimeters, but maybe about Illawarra and part of the southern tablelands and the Blue Mountains and Sydney may get more. Mm. Uh, but on the other hand, um, because because of uh, the dynamics of storms, well, we may see the damage is more in in the form of a damaging winds uh, or hail, you know, rather than heavy falls. Um, so we did that, you know. Um, with hard, the it's hard to seeing, predict, though, where that will be. That's right. But on the other hand, if you are seeing uh, storms forming a line from the radar, then beware that, you know, these lines of storms uh, can bring wind damages. Mm. So maybe wind gusts exceeding 90k per hour and some tree damages are quite possible. Okay, so uh, keep, keep your eye on and keep listening to uh, ABC Local Radio for the latest uh, emergency information as well. Juan, uh, thanks for that. My pleasure. It's 22 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, uh, with uh, dates etched on the calendar for those large-scale power stations in the Hunter region to close down and the mines as well, conversations are ramping up on what's going to take over the state's coal energy powerhouse. And in recent weeks, renewable projects have been approved. For instance, the Bowman Creek uh, Bowman's Creek Wind Farm has been given the tick of approval by the state's independent planning body. It will see a group of turbines built on the fringes of Musselbrook. It's an ideal, an idea that's staunchly opposed by some landholders. But a uh, new energy symposium was held in Newcastle this week, and uh, industry leaders are talking about uh, how renewables can ease their way into the landscapes and economies. Wind is at the top of that list, especially offshore wind. And uh, Boris Novak is the co-lead of the Hunter Hydrogen Technology Cluster. And he says that the Hunter Valley could lead the charge on wind power and manufacturing in the Pacific region. I think what uh, is also probably not widely known out there uh, and in the communities is that this region is actually a very special place in terms of establishing an offshore wind industry. There aren't many places around, even around the world, and it's probably unique in Australia, is that it has all the ingredients to help establish 
an offshore wind industry. So when we talk about establishing the industry, it's not just the projects, but the industry that supports all those projects. We can have a locus of activity here that can support not just projects off the Hunter area, but we're within two-day sail of a lot of the other projects that are uh, being garnered for establishment down south, down New South Wales, Victoria. Uh, we, we're not far that far from New Zealand. We've got the uh, also the Pacific Islands and everything. We, we could be a Asia Pacific hub here. And where I say we've got all the special ingredients, we have the skills base here. We have heavy engineering and. Um, uh, a sophisticated industry here. I mean, we are one of the global support hubs for the Joint Strike Fighter, for example. So we, it's certainly within our know-how and the skills base to support something like uh, an offshore wind industry. But we also have the deep water port where we can do the assembly for these rather large um, Jurassic-scale um, wind generators. I mean, we're talking Eiffel Tower, Empire State Building, but we're talking about hundreds of those going out of here. Um, and uh, we also have the grid connection points as well. There's, there's no other places around Australia that has all of those uh, ingredients, and, and it's not a huge jump for many participants in those existing supply chains that we're talking about in current energy and resources to actually make uh, just an, an oblique jump or a sidestep into this sort of industry. But what's needed is we just need to scale. Um, nowhere has the ability to... Um, and is already position to offer scale to meet that challenge right now and that's the race now is how do we establish that now uh, inside the, uh, the the existing planning processes and also um, whilst the feasibility um, license periods uh, played out um, this is where I say if we get immediately can start tapping into those existing supply chain needs for you know, on a global context we can start to sort of gear it up now and um, and make it even more economically feasible for our own domestic needs do you think that would offer as well you know in conjunction with some of those other energy uh, ideas that are being discussed here almost i don't want to say a complete switch out for you know not only coal power but also our coal export market that we have a very strong hunger globally for coal that's coming from here do you think eventually once that starts to wane things like wind power hydrogen developed here could be you know almost that sub in it's just another contributing factor and um and there's there's other things going on because we look at um a coal is a way of transporting captured energy. Uh, we can do that in in other er- endeavours, for example, sustainable aviation fuel, and that's the need for that is becoming much more imperative than what people realise. And there's there's uh, there's explorations in that for the for, for the production of that, for example, up in the Upper Hunter, there. So the the region is actually. Um, I believe from the people I talk to and getting out there that it's actually more on board and probably more immersed in it than what people realised. The people even embedded inside that primary industries and resources such as coal mining, they already know that this is happening. So the relevance of coal in the future might wane. Uh, What we are about is 
to help facilitate and galvanise people to actually create these new economies and for that to gain relevance such that that's not such a shock to the overall system when coal's relevance falls away. Boris Novak is the Hunter Hydrogen Technology Cluster co-lead. He was speaking to Bridget Murphy about the opportunities afoot for wind development in New South Wales with the coal-centric Hunter region at the heart there. It's uh, coming up to a quarter to one. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. A few texts on the supermarket there and uh, supermarket issue there and uh, Dee's texted in saying duopoly or monopoly. Coles in Grafton has three supermarkets within two kilometres of each other. And um, John's talking about macadamia uh, pricing. He says uh, macadamia growers are only paid $5.10 per kilo for nut nut in kernel. Uh, But a supermarket in Ballina is currently selling uh, macadamia kernel for $47 a kilo. He says this represents uh, a 930% gross price increase from grower to supermarket shelf and he says how can this not be price gouging and there's uh, a few other issues coming through on the uh, supermarket issues i'll try and get to them a little bit later on in the program it's uh, as i said it's a quarter to one well an approved rare earths mine near parks in the central west says its operation has been delayed due to the abundance of low-cost indonesian nickel the clean tech site was approved by the state government in 2022 to extract cobalt, nickel and scandium west of Firefield, but it's yet to start con- construction. Chief Executive of Sunrise Energy Sam Riggle told uh, Lani Otaway that massive Chinese investment in Indonesia has made it very hard for other countries and they're still working to secure investors. We are working really closely with Uh, both commercial banks and international funding agencies. And we're confident there's plenty of debt available for this project um, and potentially even more down the track, depending on how some of these government funding programs, particularly out of the United States and and Europe, go. But we also need uh, customers and equity partners in the project. We can't debt fund 100% of this project. Um, So that's what we're also working on as well. And... Uh, it's certainly a buyer's market for metal at the moment where prices are and uh, car companies, battery manufacturers also realise that. So while the market looks depressed, there's a lot of interest in assets like Sunrise at the moment where they're looking to secure the next two or three decades of metal supply. With your operation near Firefield, how many jobs will that operation be expected to create once it's up and running? Through construction, we're looking at a peak workforce of around uh, 1,200 people, uh, and that that would run for about three years. Um, And then in operations, we're looking probably somewhere between 450 to 500 people in operations phase. How will your production out near parks be low-cost enough to match what Indonesia is currently offering? It, It is not a level playing field, and it never has been, particularly with Chinese development. And the reason simply is that the hurdles we have to overcome here to develop even the smallest of assets needs to go through rigorous environmental permitting, approvals, testing. And then once you're built, again, obviously, we run our operations to the highest global environmental and operating standards. And that just doesn't happen. So it is a very good question. How does Australian or Western industry compete with something that is not operating to similar rules. 
Chief Executive Sunrise Energy, Sam Riggle, speaking there to Lani Otaway. It's uh, coming up to 12 minutes to one on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, let's uh, look at uh, wheat now. Australian grain farmers could soon benefit from research using artificial intelligence and genetic engineering. That's because a US-based company called Inari Agriculture has managed to raise $875 million from investors. CEO Ponzi Trivavesic says that uh, money will be used to fast-track the development of superior seed varieties, and the work they're doing on wheat is being done collaboratively with a Perth-based breeding company. We already have something very exciting um, in terms of soybeans. Yes, we have it coming along in terms of wheat, in terms of corn as well. So when you look at the type of products that we have that can radically improve the productivity for farmers, as I mentioned, that we're not targeting something that is 1x, 2x, 3x, but how you think about having the productivity that improved by 10x, 20x. It's not only about the food security, it's not only about the sustainability, um, but it's also about the farmer profitability. And when you look at this technology, when you look at this kind of product, you can address three things at the same time. Yes, that's the piece that um, they're pretty excited about it. So is the AI the key? Because in the old days, up until, well, a short while ago, the progression of the genes, the advancement of the various sort of wheat or soy varieties that people were growing, they were only improving a certain amount each year. Is the curve going going upwards like this? Is that what you're saying? Certainly, certainly, because um, in the history of uh, crop development, whether that would be soybeans or corn or wheat, the level of productivity increase is less than 1% a year, right? And then some of them are actually coming from the agronomic practice. So arguably, what is coming from the genetics alone is actually much less than 1% a year, which is um, certainly cannot cope with the, the food security and climate change that we want. So, and, it, and it can't cope with the rise of inflation. Farmers will tell you their costs are going up at a faster rate than that. Certainly, certainly. What they need more is essentially a much better productivity and what we are focusing on, what we are working on, these much better productivity crops do not take more inputs, not more nitrogen fertilizer, not more land, not more water, and all these three things are pretty high fixed costs of farmers. So if you're at the stage where you're trying to be developing these new seeds, I gather it involves not only the use of AI, but also the use of gene editing, and that has its negative connotations for some people for some people who are very keen to keep things as natural as possible and they're worried about the unknown associated with the gene editing. How do you convince the investors that you're able to overcome that resistance? Let me explain more um, the part of the multiplex gene editing, what we do. In fact, um, it is the form of accelerating the natural breeding. Right? So everything that we touch when it comes to the gene editing, it is actually we touch only the existing species. For example, when we said we edit wheat, we touch only natural genes of wheat. Uh, we do not insert the new foreign gene, right? the lycobacteria. So therefore, what we do is what the nature is doing, but we don't have 100 years or 200 years to wait for it. And when you can actually do it to address the kind of climate change challenge, in fact, the farmers actually are asking for these kind of seeds in order to help with their, with their challenge. 
So how far away are you from being able to develop some seeds that farmers here in Western Australia can actually use? I noticed today you're collaborating with Intergrain, which is a Perth-based company. Right. Um, so this is um, coming up to our two-year anniversary um, that when we announced uh, the collaboration back two years ago. So where we are today now, only within two years, we already started to send the seeds um, to Intergrain, and it is actually in Perth, in Australia, in quarantine in the glasshouse as we speak right now. So think about it as two years, again, two years. The traditional breeding takes seven years or more. The GMO takes 15 years. Within two years, we have the first generation already here. So does that mean the farmers are, maybe things are not too far away around the corner, they're going to actually have it in the ground soon? Um, so Intergrain will do further testing in the glass house and further testing in, in the field, and then thereafter the farmers will be able to experience it in Australia. That's exciting. It is, certainly exciting, and uh, we're grateful with the partnership with Intergrain, who is uh, very visionary and think about the same vision as us. That's Ponzi Tree Viz Vavet is the CEO of Inari Agriculture. She, she was speaking there to Richard Hudson. Seven minutes to one on the New South Wales country hour. Now, Varroa, and last week the national response to the destructive Varroa mite was revealed, which includes specialist staff being dispatched around Australia to slow the spread. The plan was, the plan was endorsed by the Federal Government's National Management Group, which includes 26 industry groups and will focus on beekeeper education. Trevor Monson is the Victorian Apiarists Association Sunraysia branch representative. He says now a plan is in place. He wants restrictions on the movement of beehives from New South Wales into other states lifted. Doesn't this plan allow us to have New South Wales bees come to Victoria for almond pollination? Are these people that they're going to employ going to write out a certificate that could allow us to cross the border. What are the restrictions that are in place at the moment between New South Wales and Victoria for moving bees? Yeah, not, they're not allowed in. Oh, there is a permit system, but the, the, general, the general population of, of bees in New South Wales at the moment won't be able to. So um, we're, we're, the pollination season coming up, we're going to rely heavily on Queensland bees because we know that they can get permits to come into Victoria because there's no mites in Queensland. But um, it's going to be pretty tough. If if something's not worked out, then, you know, there's going to be a shortage for bees on almonds this coming season. Are you hopeful that the management plan that's been announced could lead to some of those permits and restrictions easing? Well, there are some people that think so, but we wanted Victoria to make, declare a decision back in December um, so that it would give the Victorian beekeepers the opportunity to increase their numbers in that four almonds. But, yeah, here we are, what, you know, nearly to the end of February and, and we still don't know. And, you know, like in the conditions, conditions for breeding bees, uh, another six or eight weeks will be gone and then it's too late. So you need to be breeding bees at the moment ahead of spring, is that right? Ahead of winter. Yeah, yeah, so... So Victoria, Victoria, because of the rains last year and all the rest of it, are in a pretty good position to breed bees up until the end of April. Uh, and then, then, you know, the weather will start turning cold and, 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 yeah, it'll be too late. But so, 
you know, there's still a very small window for beekeepers to uh, split bees and make up numbers, but, you know, that that's diminishing by the day. It's beekeeper Trevor Monson speaking there to Elsie Kennedy. It's uh, coming up to four minutes to one. Time for markets. Let's go to Wagga Sheep and Lambs and Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. With numbers declining across all selling centres in New South Wales and Victoria, buyers found themselves compelled to increase bidding at Wagga. There was 38,000 lambs and 12,000 sheep offered. The standout of the auction was the mutton category, which a few thousand sold early, and prices ranged of $20 to $30 dearer to the previous sale. In the lamb sale, trade lambs weighing 20 to 24 kilo experienced an uptick of $4 to $5, fetching 118 to 160. Lambs weighing 24 to 26 kilos ranged from 160 to 174. In the heavy export category, prices lifted $7 to $11, with sales ranging from 172 to 240 and averaging around 658 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Store lamb fetched prices between 50 to 125, and those suitable to feed on reach 135. Heavy mutton sale was robust, with prices spanning anywhere from 90 to 131 dollars. With the commencement of the remainder of the mutton yet to begin, I'm Leanne Dax for MLA. Let's go to Dubbo Cattle now. Good afternoon. Numbers are back to 2,400. The quality was more consistent, but there wasn't as many heavy grown steers and heifers, and there were more light weaners alongside good lines of yearlings. Around 350 cows were offered in a market that sold to dearer trends. The weaner steers sold up to 394 cents and heifers 296. Medium weight feeder steers gained 13 cents, 340 to 400. The heavyweights lifted 7, 340 to 372. Feeder heifers were in demand, lifting 20 to 25 cents, 244 to 314. Trade cattle gained 10 cents with the heavy steers 308 to 349 and heifers 276 to 314. Grown steers lifted 14 cents, 285 to 307. The heavy grown heifers were firm and ranged between 260 and 295. Heavy cows were 9 cents better, 230 to 254, while plainer two-scored cows to restockers sold up to 259 cents. And this has been Graham Richard at Dubbo. Let's go to Yass Cattle now, Angus Williams. Numbers eased by 180 for a yarning of 633 fed, good quality cattle. Heavy prime cattle suitable for processes were well supplied, along with limited numbers of young cattle. All the regular buyers were present. Young cattle to the trade were slightly cheaper, vealer steers and heifers selling from 180 to 300, yearling steers and heifers to processes 220 to 312. Feeder steers remained firm, selling between 260 and 374, while feeder heifers were 10 cents dearer, 260 to 310. The mixed quality of young restocked cattle saw steers sell from 125 to 402 and heifers 245 to 340. Grown steers and heifers lifted 10 cents. Prime grown steers selling between 212 and 307 and prime grown heifers 228 to 298. Cows held firm with two and three scores selling from 160 to 235 and prime heavyweight cows 222 to 248. Bulls sold to 255. This has been Angus Williams for MLA at SELX. And that's the market information for today. You've been listening to the New South Wales Country Hour. We're heading up to news time at one o'clock.